0: Scriptura, Part 2. We will uh, next week then kind of take a look and see how some of y'all have done with um, those first four chapters of Deuteronomy. Uh, If you want, the idea is you take the, the theology that we've talked about and you just see how it is used... In the in the scriptures themselves, so um, I'm going to start this morning with John Wycliffe. Uh, John Wycliffe, uh, 14th century. When he was 16 years old, he went to Oxford. Not sure what college he was in at Oxford, but um, he excelled. Uh, he started a group they called the Lollards. But uh, he he was really especially astute at interpreting the scriptures. And that became part of uh, what drove him as a reformer. Um, He uh, translated the scriptures from Latin into the common tongue. So it wasn't a great translation, but it was one of the first translations. Um, And what happens when people start reading the Bible... Um, they compare it to what they're being taught. And I will remind you, if you're a member of Three Rivers, you have taken an oath. You have taken a vow. Your fifth vow is, do you promise uh, submission to the government and discipline of the church? And do you promise to study its peace and purity? might have worded it a bit different, uphold, uh, but to study, it, it, that, that word is in there, the peace and purity of the church. Um, and when we, when we go over that vow, I often tell you that, that the reason, one of the main reasons the mainline churches went liberal is because the congregation didn't follow that vow. The congregation thought uh, this person's been to seminary. They even used a couple of Greek words. They quoted somebody. Uh, Who am I to question their theology? Uh, and so I remind members when they join that that's part of your job to make sure that what's taught in the pulpit, what's taught in our Sunday schools, uh, aligns with the Word of God. And so when I say peace and purity, we talk about the peace of the church comes with pure doctrine. Many people uphold peace over doctrine. And so uh, uh, common evangelicalism, let's not go there, let's not talk about this. This is controversial. Some people don't agree with this. Um, Let's just all try to get along. Let's keep lowering the standards of what it means to be a Christian so that we all can fit in one tent. Um, uh, Not so with the Reformers. We have peace through the purity of doctrine and the purity of relationship. And so uh, that being kind of our last vow, uh, it's important that, that that vow plays in to sola scriptura. So it's why I give you notes. It's why... Um, I encourage you to, to, to read the text before. Um, I'll never forget, in California, I um, had, a, had a, uh, a single lady that joined our church. Her name was Dana, and I was preaching along, having a good old time, went off script, one of my famous rabbit trails, and I got done, and uh, she came up afterwards and said, just humbly, she said, you said this, and she had it written out word for word, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what the scriptures teach. And she goes, I'm, I'm sorry if, if you know, that's not my place. And I just remember looking at her and saying, Dana, thank you for keeping membership vow number five. <laughs> and she looked at me like, what? Peace and purity of the church. If I said those words, that is not true. And, and thank you for coming straight to me um, and uh, the next Sunday. I stood up and said, you know, when I was talking about this, I, I, I said this phrase, and that's not correct. It's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, and I'm sorry for the confusion, misunderstanding, misrepresentation. Um, and so anyway, that, that, that's, that's where this doctrine starts to play out in our, um, our polity, in our church government. Um, so they would say the greatest work of Wycliffe was uh, his translation And um, there was a couple of poems written about him. One of them says, of the book that had been the sealed up book, he tore the clasps that the nation with eyes unbandaged might look thereon and find their salvation. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church was so upset with him, their hatred so severe. He was uh, denounced by the Pope. There were five things that they denounced him for. And then uh, following, they started to persecute all of his followers. He, however, uh, died. But 40 years later, they dug up his body and they burned his bones. <laughs> so uh, it's called posthumous uh, burning at the stake. Um, they sprinkled his ashes, and um, his followers and the reformers spoke of his ashes being put into the river, which was called Swift. Uh, they were carried by the Swift to the Avon, by the Avon to the Severn, to the Severn to the Narrow Seas, the Narrow Seas to the ocean. So the reformer's teachings and message reached out into all England and from England into far distant lands. He was called the Morning Star of the Reformation. And though his bones from the grave were torn long after his life was ended, the sound of his words, to times unborn, like a trumpet call, descended. So important were the scriptures to those who have gone before us that they risked their lives to make sure that you and I would have the true and right word of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for those who have gone before us We have such liberties in this country. We forget often the cost of those liberties. But even more important, Father, may we hold your word as sacred, as more important than our feelings and our understanding. May we hold it above all other authorities. Father, we pray that we understand how the proper way to use it. We pray that you would give us hearts that are humble, open to be taught, But also, Father, open to be corrected, to be challenged, that we might be willing and able to say, I believe this because this is what the Word says. And we may be able to, Father, even understand what the Word says in its proper use, in its proper context. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue talking about uh, Sola Scriptura, I have one other book that some of you might be interested in. I couldn't find I had another book written by Robert Vashholtz, and he, uh, Robert Vashholtz, talks about canonicity in the Old Testament. So again, it's quite a nerdy book, but he explains that in the Old Testament, uh, the writing of the Scriptures they understood. There was this general understanding that we are writing the Word of God. We are writing it down. And, and he goes about uh, the, the, the rule and, how, and how, they, uh, how they kept it and how tradition and all of that was put into it. Um, this is uh, Inspiration and Canonicity of the Scriptures by R. Laird Harris. Um, he, he, if you've ever taken a Bible in a a secular institution, or even in some Christian institutions, you've probably been given a couple of different theories about how the canon was put together. Um, One is uh, the the documentary hypothesis, which is almost taken as truth in in just about every liberal university, Um, and that is that the scriptures were written and then they were redacted over over different periods, over different reigns of kings. um, They would come through and they would change it um, and so there were four main redactors. And I never forget, I was reading a, a commentary for a study. I think it was in First Samuel. And, and lo and behold, the light went on that, okay, I may not want to trust this person because he wrote in the text, he said, the redactor did such a great job here that it's hard to see. <laughs> and I just wrote in there, because maybe he didn't do anything. Um, but that, there are so many ways that our scriptures are attacked. And the enemy knows that that if, if he sows a seed of disbelief and doubt into God's word, the very, very start of his war against humanity was to sow a seed of doubt that God's word can be trusted. That God's word should stand above what I feel, what I see, what I think, what I long for. The very seed of doubt. And so there are so many ways that he's done that. Another way he does that, maybe not even in the intellectual, but in the denominational structures. And so you'll have people that say, well, that's just how you interpret it. There's a whole bunch of people that interpret it this way. And and as a result, we shouldn't be dogmatic. As a result, how can you say if they say? And, And that's another way that the power of the word, its authority, gets undermined. So... The reformers um, are kind of responsible for that, for what we called last week Tradition Zero, um, for uh, giving a Bible to a person uh, without the proper training. Um, when we started the church, all the men, we went through the Heidelberg Catechism together. And the idea was that, that uh, when, a, uh, when a, an officer was taught, when a child was raised, that they were given theology first and then given the Bible. <laughs> Uh, we want to give you the, 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 the network, the framework of how to understand how this book is to be used, and, and then we would go and study. Um, so we left off um, after we talked about tradition three, papal infallibility, uh, when he speaks from his office ex cathedra, uh, to that tradition three that, that above, even above the scriptures stands the authority of the magisterium, the the pope. So that was all what was going on when the reformers cried out, no, sola scriptura. So um, in your notes, um, we can start right where it says, a self-exalting authority of their own minds. So that was one of the results, this tradition zero, and it's what we see quite a bit now uh, uh, all throughout evangelicalism. Here's an interesting text, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days, 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, <clears throat> Jesus answered using the Scriptures. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, Jesus, in his humanity, using the Word of God, Verse 5, the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You see what the devil is doing right there in verse 6? He is using Scripture (laughs) out of context to tempt our very Savior, the very Son of God. So uh, it is one way, that scriptures get misused by Satan himself to draw the people of God. Uh, And so Jesus said, it is written, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him high mountain, showed him the kingdoms of the world. He said, all these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, be gone. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In Hebrew class, I remember we were getting all excited about learning uh, Hebrew, and uh, uh, our teacher, Phil Long, says, By the way, uh, if you find any new meaning to the Scriptures that heretofore hasn't been noticed or taught, you're wrong. <laughs> and uh, I just remember I felt disappointment. Like I thought, oh, I'm going to find things that nobody else has found. Uh, but how uh, awesome for him to say. You know, the, the, the chances are that at this point, at this juncture, especially with your limited knowledge, you're going to find meanings and secrets here that that nobody else has found. So, uh, Scripture alone, what does that mean? And we probably should have written, by Scripture alone. Scripture alone, actually, is more that tradition zero. We only only have the Bible, but by Scripture alone, we have our confessions, our creeds. uh, They are all subservient to the Scriptures. But it means that we believe that Scripture, as it was given, is perfect. It was perfect. It was complete. That word is used often. Now we have two witnesses, um, what we call the internal witness, where the scripture itself uh, appeals to its perfection and its completeness. So uh, that's the internal witness of the word. So when you read the word, uh, it tells you, Um, that it is the Word of God. It tells you that it is without error. It it tells you. Now, um, one of the reasons that's important is that it it is that's its intended use. Uh, It's not a book that was written and then later on, after Jesus dies, the followers are like, uh, we're going to make this something sacred. It was intended. Um, uh, And then we have, of course, the external. So again, both of those are attacked by various forms, the external, uh, people trying to deny just history, uh, events, things like that in the scripture, or uh, we find all these different manuscripts, and and so sometimes in your Bible, you might even have a footnote that says, some manuscripts say this, and some manuscripts say that, Uh, the textual criticism crowd, sometimes like you you can't really trust it, but when we talk about perfection in scripture, the, the meaning is, what we would say the original autograph was perfect. The original autograph was without flaw. Uh, we don't say the King James is perfect. We don't say the ESV is perfect. We say the original autograph. And, and then through all of our textual criticism, the Bible that you hold in your hand is, is the most accurate yet to date because Dead Sea Scrolls have been found because our, our, the, the quality and the amount of text that we have. Uh, and so if, if you're interested in that, I've got another book by uh, a guy's name is Black, and he talks about how uh, textual criticism, especially in the New Testament, uh, how we know when you have a Masoretic text that says this, and, and a text from a different area of the country is found, it says this, how we arrive at our meanings. But, but, but what we are saying is the original Autograph, the original written was without error. Um, what's great about all these other copies and manuscripts is where we find discrepancies, it's minimal. <laughs> where we find any kind of discrepancy, it has nothing to do with the core of the Christian faith. Um, Wayne Grudem writes in his Systematic Theology Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains everything we need god to tell us for salvation we trust him perfectly and for obeying him perfectly deuteronomy the secret things belong to the lord the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of his law the the scriptures are all that is necessary the rich man and lazarus remember that he goes and says okay Please let me go back and tell my brothers. If, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm brought back from the dead, I mean, how, how amazing is it? If I'm brought back from the dead and I go and tell my brothers about this place, and the, God responds, they have Moses and the prophets, in verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Interesting, isn't it? We've had someone from the dead. Uh, come and tell us to repent. He said, If they do not hear Moses, if they do not hear the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Paul writes to Timothy in the pastoral epistles, As for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, perfection, perpiscuity. Anybody know what the word perpiscuity means? Scotty. It's obviously For truth, it's right. Yeah, truth is obvious, or it's funny that word yeah, means clear. <laughs> the word itself isn't very clear, but uh, uh, periscuity of scriptures, Westminster Confession of Faith says, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. Nor alike clear unto all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. So what, what it's saying there is the Scriptures are clear. They're clear enough for a reasonable mind to read and to understand the way of salvation scripture then is sufficient in all things uh, in all that is intended must be read preached and interpreted properly, properly according to the apostolic tradition <clears throat> jesus in luke 24 on the road to emmaus uh, the disciples that thought well we thought it was him but obviously it wasn't because he was crucified he says you're slow of heart to believe all that was spoken by the prophets, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It is sufficient for all that God wants us to know concerning himself, our relationship with others. Um, It is authoritative because of that. Uh, There are other authorities. They are all subordinate to the scriptures properly interpreted. So in the Presbyterian Church in America, we have our standards, and those standards are the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms and our Book of Church Order. Our Book of Church Order contains the system of of doctrine and and how we uh, govern what we call polity, the government of the church. Um, They are all subservient to the scriptures. So when a person is being ordained... Uh, or called to, to an authoritative office of deacon or elder. Um, they're asked, do you uphold to what the Westminster Confession and the standards say? And if you do, if you have any exceptions, you need to state them. And, and so they say, I, I, you know, usually it has to do with the Sabbath, sometimes the other parts where they say, I, you know, uh, th- these are the views I hold that might be contrary. And then the assembly vote. So these, do these strike at the heart of our religion? And occasionally someone might have a view that we don't think strikes at the heart of the religion, but they're asked not to teach it. Um, so, uh, but the scriptures stand above that, and when they have an exception, we ask them to show us in the scriptures why they have an exception. Uh, what, what, what reading of the scriptures and um, so. Uh, so this means that we believe in, the, in what we like to call the three eyes of scripture, that it is inspired. Um, First Peter, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Timothy uh, 3, 6, 2 Timothy 3, 16, all Scripture is breathed out. It's a beautiful word. That's one word, theopneustos, God breathes it out. It comes from Him uh, and is profitable. Here's what it's profitable for, teaching, reproof, correction, training. In righteousness, the next verse, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, so, scripture being inspired um, by God, it's more, it's, it's not, you, know, you might be inspired to make a painting. Uh, so, it's not that, that there's this inspiration in a person and I feel like I'm going to write a letter. Uh, it doesn't mean, it, it is a much deeper meaning. As I said, it's breathed out. They are writing the very words of God. Infallible. Since it's inspired, it is never wrong. Popes were wrong. One point in the Reformation, there were two popes. (laughs) So they were warring with each other. You know, it's like, okay, which one are we supposed to believe, guys? Um, Popes, uh, it it is never wrong. I don't know in your notes that I put the quote from Prince Humperdinck. That was for you, Jason. Yeah, yeah. Humperdinck, unless I'm wrong, and I'm never wrong, this is the work of the Gildarians. Now, if you've watched Princess Bride, you know when he says that, and he is wrong. (laughs) In fact, he is lying at that point. Um, The Word of God is never wrong, it is then also inerrant without any error in its original autographs <clears throat> uh, I put in Hebrews four twelve and 13 another beautiful use of the word there so where does that put the church the church is a necessary secondary authority I put in your notes established by Jesus in Matthew 16 it uh, that's wrong it was established way before Matthew 16 um you see even structures as soon as Israel comes out of Egypt, that, that there are, there is a structure, there is rule, there is authority. There are elders, there are clans. And even in, in Exodus, <clears throat> you have um, uh, Moses' father, Jethro, saying, Moses, you know, it's not good for one person. Uh, you're like a pope. <laughs> you're like a king. You're like prophet, priest, and king all in one office um and and then he's right and so moses takes men upon whom the spirit dwells even there in the old testament Um, so the church is given authority to disciple and to teach the nations in the great commission keith matheson says the church is the human agency with the authority and ability to speak Um, this idea that there's a whole host of christians out there that don't belong to a church it's terrible it's wrong. It's not biblical. It doesn't stand in history. When people say that to me, oh, it's not important to be a member of the church, you know, it's just me and Jesus. I'm like, well, what about all the writings to the churches? What about all the encouragement to honor your elders? What about all these uh, structures that are put out there? Um, How do you do that? Uh, How how is that even possible? It's it's just completely assumed in the New Testament that, that the believers would gather together that there would be overseers, that there would be community, that there would be authority, that there would be discipline uh, amongst the church. Keith Matheson, the church in, is a human agency and the authority, an ability to speak. The scripture contains the content of what she is to speak. The church is necessary because the Bible cannot preach itself, and without the Bible, the church has nothing to say. Uh, did I put in there the Gideon's question mark? I'm not necessarily against the Gideons, but I, sometimes I get asked, why, why don't you have a Gideon speaker and why don't we give to the Gideons? Um, and, and this is why. I don't think our job is to just hand out Bibles. Uh, it, it, I, I, you know, I've just talked about that it's the ultimate supreme authority. But to hand, to hand a Bible out to a person that doesn't understand how it is to be used, how it is to be read, how it is to be interpreted, uh, creates this sense among, sometimes among believers, that I've done my job. I've passed these out. And, and you know, I hear things like that. Like, we we, we buried a Bible at the corner of our properties, you know. Like, it's a, a magical, mystical book that's going to protect, you know, our property. You know, I've, I've heard about churches being built where they put Bibles in the foundation. Uh, and I'm like, well, how's anybody going to read that? <laughs> um, and 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 so, if you know, when that comes up, I, I appreciate their work, um, but I think it falls short. Our job is not just to just to interpret and then give; it is to hand the Bible to a person that we then teach how to read that Bible. We read it with them. We walk them through it. Um, so uh, we talk about it being interpreted in the rule of faith, creates counsels, sound words, systems. Uh, Throughout 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, you you read that there's a system. uh, The gospel is to be entrusted. There are trustworthy sayings. The Apostles' Creed comes out as an early, early creed saying this is what Christianity is. This is what we believe. The Nicene Creed in 325 uh, A.D. comes out uh, again because of these attacks against orthodoxy. Um, Just a couple of concluding thoughts. Tradition zero. It has no power to settle disagreements. Tradition zero, meaning I am my own creed. I am my own council. I am my own church. Uh, It has resulted in many divisions in the church and an ultimate loss of the authority of the scriptures. If you're in a Bible study and people are encouraged to say, what does this mean to you? Uh, You need to to really push against that and say, uh, what is this scripture teaching? How do I apply it? But in the sense that that we read the scriptures and it's a reader response, um, as Karl Barth, you know, Christian, said, the word of God comes to us as we read the scriptures, All right? And so, e- even that kind of subtle, you know, the word of God comes to me as I read. This isn't the word of God, and and it's not. It's a it's a copy of the word of God. Okay? It's a translation of the word of God, um, but. But when he said, you know, kind of the founder of this neo-orthodoxy, when he said, you know, the word of God comes to you as you read it, um, this, just a dangerous step away from the right authority of the word. Uh, questions? Pat. I just have a comment. A lot of people will always want to know which version, is the right version mm. and somebody once said it's the one that you will read. Mm. And I found in my life it's it's like there's a lot of versions. And there was a lot since I started when I became a Christian through those years. And it seems like the the scripture versions are consistent in their meaning. Yes. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Yeah. Um, the the different versions. One of the reasons I switched to the ESV how many years ago, Tammy? Twenty? been a while. I was using NIV because I love the way it sounded, but there was on occasion I would say, oh, I don't like this. And it wasn't just me as some kind of Hebrew scholar. You know, it was, it was other people before me that I was reading. Uh, and then I'd found that, that if, I, if I did that, I was afraid that I was telling the congregation, you really shouldn't read it, you know, because our pastor is correcting this and this and this. And so I, when I made that switch, but also our language changes too. Yeah, that's what I've noticed. Yeah. <gasps> Yeah. <laughs> like but, the Living Bible, you know. That was such a a popular version. Yeah. It just fell out. Yeah, yeah. I think the typical reform stance is what's called a literal dynamic translation. That's what the ESV falls under, King James version falls under, and even the Aspect It's typically literal Yeah. Scotty said the literal dynamic version. So. Um, occasionally, you'll read in the Old Testament uh, an idiom, you know, and you'll be like, "What on earth does that mean?" Um, and and uh, that might be a literal translation of an idiomatic expression, um, and and so some translations would then translate that into an idiom, maybe that we would understand. Yeah. All right. So next week, if you got time, we'll start off class with those first four chapters of Deuteronomy. And just as you read that, think about how is God's word treated? What's the expectation? Deuteronomy being second law. Uh, The the context being they're ready to enter the promised land. And they've gone through all the wanderings and all the discipline. And now he's saying, oh boy, don't forget this. (laughs) This is how we got here. This is is to bless us when we enter into this land that the Lord has given us. So um, thank you. You're dismissed.